This is a tale of love, obsession, madness, candy incarnations. It is a story of Mother's Day. The holiday was passionately promoted by Anna Jarvis. And she was described as many as a woman of fierce loyalty and tireless enterprise and a total raving lunatic. Miss Jarvis worshipped her mother's memory. And no wonder. Her mother, Anne-Marie Reeves Jarvis, was truly a saint. A daughter of a clergyman, Anna-Marie Reeves married merchant and minister Granville E. Jarvis and gave birth to 11 children, only four of whom survived into adulthood. In 1851, Ms. Jarvis, a Sunday school teacher, founded Mother's Day work clubs in West Virginia. Now, the Civil War divided West Virginia communities and families, but Ms. Jarvis kept Mother's Day work club members together. The women treated wounded soldiers on both sides and helped combat typhoid fever and measles epidemics. After the war, Ms. Jarvis organized an annual Mother's Friendship Day to help reunite neighbors who had supported opposing sides. People honored mothers with carnations. After her husband died in 1902, Miss Jarvis and her daughters moved to Philadelphia and lived with her son, Claude, a prosperous businessman. Anne-Marie Reeves Jarvis died on the second Sunday in May 1905, and daughter Anne was bereft two years after her mother's death on the second Sunday in May, Miss Jarvis invited friends to observe the occasion. Accomplishing her mother's dream became a nightmare for Anna Jarvis. For her, the holiday was sacred to the memory of her own mother. Now it was profaned by the pursuit of profits by florists, confectioners, restaurants, and greeting card manufacturers. She said, I wanted it to be a day of sentiment, not profit. She said, a printed card means nothing except that you are too lazy to write to the woman who has done more for you than anyone in the world. And candy? You take a box to mother and then eat most of it yourself. A petty sentiment. The commercialization of Mother's Day drove her insane. Literally, she ended her life in a sanitarium. Don't you just love history? Tonight, we are going to take a dive into a mother's love with some cases that might unsettle you. If this is your first time here, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained. And this is episode 21 of Not Another Horror Podcast. Peter and Joan Porco and their two sons, Christopher and Jonathan, lived on a modest oak-shaded suburban street in the town of Bethlehem, New York. A couple of blocks from the local high school is a town where teen drinking is the biggest problem and even a burglary is a rare occurrence. 
So when Peter Porco, a clerk in the Albany County Courthouse, failed to show up for a trial on November 15, 2004, court police, at the request of co-workers, went to the Porco residence to check on him. Joan and Peter Porco had been found seemingly slaughtered. The saga began in the early morning hours of Monday, November 15, 2004, when Peter Porco, 52, was found severely beaten and nearly decapitated in his home, the results of an attack with a fireman's hatchet, law enforcement officials said. His wife, Joan, 54, an elementary school speech therapist, was found in an upstairs bedroom, also severely beaten but clinging to life. She underwent extensive surgery for facial wounds and brain injuries, but survived. A miraculous recovery, according to the accounts of the trial. A fireman's axe that was used in the attack was lying in the couple's blood-drenched bedroom. The story takes a strange turn. After the father, Peter, was attacked, he went about his regular morning routine, unaware that he was dying. He walked into the kitchen, packed a lunch signed a check to cover his son's parking tickets and attempted to unload the dishwasher. Finally, he collapsed on the floor and died, leaving them a car but mind-boggling scene for police to discover. When police first encountered Joan Porco lying in her blood-drenched bed, she was asked if a family member had been the attacker. According to trial testimony by Bethlehem Police, Joan nodded, and police didn't ask her if Christopher was the attacker. She nodded again. She answered yes and no questions with head turns or head nods on that morning, so the police felt it was credible. An all-points bulletin was then put out for Christopher, less than two hours after the parents were discovered. The Times Union, not the police, was the first to contact Christopher about the attacks on his parents when a reporter called his dorm room that Monday afternoon, attempting to refrain from giving any details about the family, intending to get information from Christopher's roommate. He instead reached Porco himself, who told the reporter that he was unaware of the attack and that he had been in Rochester all of Monday. Porco, then 21 years old, was an economics major at UR, active in ROTC and the Sigma Pi Epsilon fraternity. He returned to Albany on Monday night and was questioned for four hours at the Bethlehem police station, but was released, authorities seemed to immediately zero in on Porco as a suspect and subpoenaed the family's easy pass records. They then impounded Christopher's 2004 Yellow Jeep Wrangler guessing that Porco had driven roughly 230 miles from Rochester to Albany late Sunday night and returned early Monday morning. A complex portrait of Porco's motive began to emerge. In the spring semester prior to the killings, he dropped out of UR because of academic troubles. He quit UR swim team, something he had been dedicated to since high school. He was forced to leave ROTC due to poor academic performance and changed his major from biomedical engineering to economics, facing the possibility of academic probation. But more important than Porco's academic struggles was a $32,000 loan that he applied for in order to return to UR in September 2004. And he also used his father's signature, which was seen by prosecutors as the instigator of tension between Porco and his parents. 
Porco allegedly applied to an online loan service using his father's name and social security number after leaving UR in the spring semester. Investigators said that Porco had wanted to return to UR, but it seemed that his parents were unwilling to financially support him. Peter Porco, upset over his son's duplicity and lies and allegedly threatened legal action against Christopher shortly before the murder. Prosecutors argue that Christopher staged a burglary to cover up the murder and suggested that Porco disable the house alarm with a code that only his family knew. They also said he wore protective medical clothing obtained from his work, a theory that explained the lack of physical evidence from the crime scene. However, key testimony for the prosecution came from a neighbor who claimed that he saw Porco's yellow Jeep in the driveway in the early morning hours when the attacks happened. UR security investigators showed security camera footage of what appeared to be Porco's Jeep leaving campus during the hours in question. A toll collector also told investigators that she had seen a yellow Jeep on November 15th, which she claimed to remember seeing because of its excessive speed. Furthermore, Poco's college friends testified that he had never slept in the dormitory lounge, as Porco claimed he had on the Monday night that his parents were killed. By all accounts, everything seemed to point to him, but there's nothing quite like a mother's love. Remember when I told you that Joan told police that it had been Christopher who had done it? Well, she recanted her story. In fact, Joan complicated the investigation any way she could, including writing a letter for media outlets in August 2005 in which she implored the police to leave her son alone. Porco himself never testified during the lengthy and publicized trial, nor did he show any emotion during its entirety, which many said hurt his case. He was convicted on August 10th, 2006, but not sentenced until December, when he received the sentence he is currently serving, a minimum of 50 years to life in prison. She fights for his release to this day. There's truly nothing that can stop a mother from protecting her child, even when they are in the wrong. But sometimes the kids aren't her priority, and the mother sees them as disposable. At least... That's how Deanne Downs felt. In 1983, Downs, a 27-year-old divorced postal service worker, told police that a bushy-haired stranger flagged down her car and shot her three children on a black road near Springfield, Oregon. Her daughter, Cheryl, seven, was dead on arrival at the hospital, and her other children, Christy, eight, and Danny, three, were clinging to life. Down's story about the stranger did not add up. Reading through her secret diaries, police found a motive, an obsession with a married man who didn't appear to want her children. In February 1984, nine months after the shootings, they arrested her and charged her with one count of murder and two counts of attempted murder. Down's trial was a national spectacle that was later depicted in the TV movie Small Sacrifices, starring Farrah Fawcett as Downs. She was sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. Filicide is one well, worst acts that parents can commit. 
It is killing your children on purpose. Let me tell you about Andrea Yates. In June 2001, Andrea Yates methodically drowned her five children in the bathtub in their Houston home. The case shocked the American public. Yates told police and psychiatrists after the crime that Satan ordered her to kill sons Noah, John, Paul, Luke, and six-month-old Mary to save them from eternal damnation. Yates, a former nurse in the valedictorian of her high school, suffered from mental illness for years, depression with bouts of psychosis, suicide attempts, and hospitalizations. In tapes of Yates' psychological evaluation, released exclusively to primetime in 2006, she recalled details of the morning she murdered her kids, describing how she waited until her husband left to start filling the tub. Drowning them was all she thought about. Yates was convicted of capital murder in March 2002, rejecting the defense argument that she was insane at the time of the killings. But in 2006, Yates was retried and found not guilty by reasons of insanity and was committed to a state mental hospital. Some kids developed an unhealthy obsession with their mother. It's not always love. Sometimes it's hate that fuels a person. One person comes to mind. The saying, a boy's best friend is his mother, has become synonymous with Anthony Perkins' unnerving portrayal of a certain homicidal mama's boy, Norman Bates, in the Hitchcock classic Psycho. By now, it's well known that Hitchcock ripped his script from the pages of Robert Bloch's book, Psycho and that the character Bates was based on the so-called Butcher of Plainfield, Wisconsin, a man that we all know, Ed Jean. Deranged killer Ed Jean was notorious for being a necrophiliac who skinned the bodies of his victims to make clothing and furniture. If you've ever heard someone say the joke of, I don't want to get turned into a lampshade, well, that's where it comes from. The wild nature of his crimes inspired a wave of horror movies and books that are cemented in pop culture today, such as The Silence of the Lambs and Psycho. But it all started on a Wisconsin farm in the 1950s. Gene spent most of his childhood on this farmland, living with his parents and brother, and spent most of his life there, rarely leaving, except for school. In the early 1940s, the family lost their patriarch when his father George died, leaving behind the brothers and their mother. Their upbringing under her guidance was considered to be controlling and iron-fisted, and apparently she taught her sons to have what can be considered problematic views based on her religious beliefs. By 1945, Ed was the last living member of his immediate family. His mother died that year, and his brother had died in a sketchy fire the year before. Gene had grown up on the farm, secluded from society, and he remained there after the death of his mother. But after her death, he spiraled downhill. It is believed that during this time period, Gene was grieving, but also honed his sick and depraved nature. He would later confirm to police that he visited graveyards to recover the bodies of dead women. Gene is said to have defiled the corpse's dismembered parts and preserved organs and skinned them to wear. But 
It's possible no one would have known what he was up to until a local woman who ran a hardware store went missing in 1957. Shop owner Bernice Warden vanished in November that year. Her son, a police officer, began investigating her disappearance and suspected one person in particular, Jean. Despite Gene keeping to himself on his farm, locals mostly knew him to be an odd loner, and it raised suspicion. He was the last known person seen with Warden, and had even attempted to invite her out on a date days prior. When he was spotted driving her pickup truck, he became the main suspect in her disappearance. Police descended on this farmhouse of horrors. What they found was one of the most shocking crime scenes. A trail of blood led to a shed on the property. Not only did they find Bernice Warden, who was dead and hanging inside the shed, they also found the severed head of Mary Hogan, who went missing in 1954. Investigators eventually determined that both Warden and Hogan's deaths were caused by a gunshot. Investigators would also discover the body parts of other women in different parts of Jean's house. Police recovered various household items actually made from human remains. They included things like a belt made up of nipples, human skulls as bowls, chairs made of skin, and more lampshades. The skulls of 10 women were found on his property, but police believe the parts he defiled came from a total of 15, some whom were never identified. Gene was found in a neighbor's house. He was then arrested and charged. He later admitted to targeting women who reminded him of his mother. Well, that's all I have for you this week. Stay safe, stay sane, and remember, a boy's best friend is his mother. <laughs>